and welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. Today, we have got Bob Kitchen, who is the Emergency Director for the International Rescue Committee. He leads the team that deploys into conflicts during humanitarian emergencies. So, for instance, when the Rohingya fleed over into Cox's Bazaar, it was Bob's team that was trying to respond as fast as possible uh, to those refugees. This is the interview that explains what emergency response is and how you do it. It's a look into the way the IRC plans, implements, and delivers emergency services and the very naughty issues that we deal with in our day-to-day. And these are the issues that we deal with in delivering services to literally the hardest places. When violence erupts in South Sudan, when there are natural disasters in the Asia-Pacific region, when violence subsumes the Central African Republic. So as Grant said, there are huge operational challenges to getting into an emergency quickly. And one of the things that Bob has been leading within the IRC is a big process to try and increase the scale and speed with which we can respond. And before we hop in, I just want to paint a little bit of a picture of the context. As of two years ago, crises left an estimated 165 million people in 47 countries in need of humanitarian assistance. A quarter of those people in need were in just three countries, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq. The thing is, crises are increasingly protracted. Refugees are displaced on average for 12 years. Conflicts last over 10 years. But those crises start somewhere. And that's exactly what Bob's team is responding to, the immediate onsets of when violence erupts. And understanding how to respond at those moments is absolutely critical to delivering life-saving services to those in need and ensuring that those affected by conflict at the beginning are okay. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. I'd love you to paint a picture of what response looks like in the first 72 hours of either a conflict or a natural disaster. So something happens around the world. A war breaks out or we hear about a a specific incident of conflict or an earthquake happens, an army. As long as it's a rapid um, onset crisis, things look pretty similar. The first thing we do is we figure out what's happened. And at the IRC, that means conducting a classification exercise. So we have a database. We feed in four pieces of information, number of people killed, number of people injured, number of people affected, and number of people displaced. And those four pieces of information tell a much broader picture about the severity of the crisis. We look at several other pieces of data about whether the crisis is going to be as bad or worse in 30 days, um, whether we can gain access, what the legal environment is like. And we come up with two data points. The first is how severe is it on a scale of one to 10? And the second is answering the question as to whether we as an organization should respond. And if we do respond, how much energy mobilization Mm -hmm. from across the organization do we need to put into ensuring that it's a successful response? So that sounds complex. If we're on our game, it takes less than half an hour to make a decision um, to go into a completely new country, completely new crisis for the ISC. Um, So it's a, a system that has been built to help automate decisions, to take emotion out of it and to make decisions based on data. So that's the first thing that happens. And then rapidly a series of other things happen once we make the decision that we should respond. So two things happen concurrently. One, we make um, our best effort to find out 
all of the information, moving past those four pieces of data about where is the need, what's the nature of the need, what do people need, based on every piece of open source data we can find. And we, we start to create a picture about humanitarian needs and where we're most needed. Concurrently, we start buying tickets. We, we have a, uh, the workforce of 83 staff, um, 40 of those, about half of those are based at home, wherever home is. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the big effort once we've finished crunching numbers or as we're crunching numbers is the logistics of bringing a big team together from around the world. So it's organizing visas, it's booking tickets, it's making sure that people have got the right gear and getting them on planes. So they converge on the new crisis zone. And from there, um, it, it really kicks into a process that can be um, summed up in three words. We ask, we listen, and we act. So we ask the affected population, what's happened? How has your life been changed? How has your needs been changed by the shock that has occurred, whether it's war or crisis or disaster, whatever it is, and therefore what are your biggest priorities? We know from decades of experience that if we come in and just project our knowledge and our values onto a crisis, we're going to end up doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and those activities won't be embraced and they won't make the difference. They won't save lives because they're not the people's priorities. So the first 72 hours is mostly about identifying what the crisis is, making a decision and getting people on the way, um, arriving on the ground and making a difference as rapidly as we can while listening to what people need. Long answer. (laughs) When you're actually thinking about whether to go into that country, you've got an entry criteria that includes assessing whether the state or local civil society actors have the capacity or the will to help the the affected population. How do you you get a handle on that, particularly very, very quickly? So within the classification system, we have a uh, one metric that is established for all of the countries in the world is a pre-crisis vulnerability index, which looks at the capacity of the state. Um, and that's comprised of GDP. It's its place in the humanitarian development index. It's a number of different metrics that allow us to see how robust their capacity is to handle. So how, how robust their capacity is, a guide of their intent um, and um, whether they have credibility to serve the people. So they're the three dynamics that we look at. We make those choices and we update those on, a, on an annual basis so we already know what we're dealing with. So we then compare the severity of the crisis to the pre-crisis vulnerability index and it gives us a, a pretty rough guide as to whether the local state can handle it. Now, the reality is um, for the Central African Republics, the Chads, the um, Myanmar's of this world, it's a pretty easy calculus. Comparatively low capacity, um, civil chaos, you know, they're going to need help no matter what the, the size of the shock is, as long as it's reasonably sized. Where it becomes way more complex is when you're dealing with first world countries who are quote unquote developed and capable members of the EU, where they experience crises and on their paper Credibility on paper doesn't realise in, in reality. So like, t- take Germany, for instance. How did that? How did you think about that? So Germany is an example of um, on one end of a continuum, and I, I can speak to another European state, which is essentially on the other end of the continuum, where we looked at Greece and Germany, and we made a decision based on similar data that ended up in very different outcomes. So in Greece, member of the EU, a very shaky economy, but a member of the European Union and should have been able to handle, had civil protection cap- capability, immigration capability, 
a comparatively robust civil society. They should be able to handle this. But in reality, with the numbers of people flooding through um, their borders onto the islands in 2015, where they were seeing arrivals of mounting to 10,000 a day, it overwhelmed their capacity. They couldn't handle... Um, the influx of people, their humanitarian needs. I remember in 2015 going to the island of Lesvos and um, they had stopped the flow of people crossing Lesvos and then moving to the mainland. They had enforced a control point where people had to register, um, register their intent to seek asylum, um, and only when that registration was complete could they move on. So they had a bottleneck. They had 4,000 people arriving a day, um, and it rapidly moved to a place where the refugees and asylum seekers outnumbered the people living on Lesvos. And the net outcome of that was the major town on Lesvos, tourist haven, beautiful little port, didn't have enough toilets to keep up with the number of people in town. So the major streets in Mytilene were, as you can imagine, not pretty. They didn't smell nice. And there was a real risk of public health outbreaks. So the ISE arrived, rented and deployed portaloos, porter cabins with toilets in them, and we were able to relieve the risk of public health outbreak. So there's material there were material ways that we could help the Greek authorities handle this influx of people. The other end of the continuum, Germany looked like they could handle it, and they could in many um, functional, structural ways. They were able to house um, refugees as they arrived, refugees and asylum seekers, in gyms and schools and public housing. They did a pretty good job of handling the physical needs of refugees. But the psychosocial needs, the education needs, the dealing with trauma-affected populations, they themselves acknowledged that they didn't have, as a state, um, and especially as a federal state, where there's a lot of decentralization around education standards, they didn't have experience. So they were welcoming of an NGO who came in and didn't say, get out of the way, we'll do it for you, but can we come and help? Can we train your teachers? Can we train your associations to be able to look after the different attributes, not just housing, not just feeding, but job skills, um, acquiring new jobs, um, education standards, training of teachers, etc. So there, there is a question of, as to whether we go. And then if there's a, a yes to that, there's still a question as to what we do, how we can be most helpful, whether it's to the affected population itself or whether it's to assisting the, the host state. So it's, uh, it's an interesting context, um, particularly when you're thinking about the refugee crisis in Europe, because they are states with capacity. I mean, member states of the European Union would never be the states that I think 10 years ago, anybody in the humanitarian space would have necessarily predicted would be would require that kind of emergency relief operations that um, that you've been launching. So when you get to Lesvos, you're working on, you know, setting up, uh, you know, public health infrastructure, toilets, et cetera. And maybe when you're getting to Germany, you're working on psychosocial support. When you're working in states that have capacity, which we're going to get more into and unpack that, uh, what's the mode of operation for working with government um, or other players, which I think it's, I imagine it's very different to come into Germany and uh, connect with both the decentralized uh, forms of governance as well as the federal government versus a Central African Republic where you have a much weaker government. How does your decision making change? Has your allocation of resources change? And does the composition of, of uh, either the management structure or the uh, execution structure shift in any ways. Yeah. So it, there's definitely, a, we look differently as an organization, as teams on the ground, we definitely look differently in our composition in a Germany compared to a Central African Republic, where in Germany, it's a light footprint, 
predominantly German staff who have worked internationally with the IRC and other aid organisations who themselves want to come back home to help, to do something, to provide their technical assistance. Um, so it ends up being a pretty small team working at a quite national or at least state level, advising on curricula and teacher training um, methodologies not necessarily even training itself. It's it, it's affecting the way things are done rather than doing them ourselves. Compared mm -hmm. to the Central African Republic or the Democratic Republic of Congo, where in many instances during the, you know, through the life of our engagement in those countries, we have substituted for or substantively supported the government system. So in the Central African Republic, um, there really isn't a functional health system without the NGO support, without the IRC, without Doctors Without Borders. There isn't a functional health system for anybody in mm -hmm. country. So we go in and we take on the responsibility for paying incentive slash salaries for the health workers. We take on the responsibility of importing and maintaining the central pipeline of drugs and making sure that it gets to clinics and making sure that those clinics provide free healthcare to war-affected populations. That's massively different than a Germany where we're, we're advising on mm -hmm. refinements to the system. We're running the system in those countries. So just coming back really quickly, uh, you were kind of we were talking about exit criterion and entry criterion uh, going into when you're going to deploy, um, and you started kind of thinking about the Central African Republics and the Chads as potentially easy cases, right? Like clear cases of when you would deploy, and just like paint a picture. What are the cases that have just been a clear no where you're not going to necessarily deploy that you've seen over the past few years? I think also more so, what have been the hard mm. cases? What have been kind of near that threshold where you have people in a room saying we should go, you have other people saying we shouldn't go, and you're and you're really there making a tough choice on whether to deploy or not? Didn't IRC nearly respond to Katrina? Um, lots of questions there. <laughs> uh, I'll start with the easy one. Uh, Katrina, we sent two staff, senior advisors, down to work with uh, a local, like, quote-unquote, local organisation in Baton Rouge. Um, to advise them on disaster response for a very short period of time. And that's really the only material, and even then it was not so material, way we've engaged in domestic responses. So the US is, the, interestingly, the US is on that line of do we respond or not. So mm -hmm. I'll come back to that. The, the no's have been, in, for different ways, um, predominantly around natural disasters. So mm -hmm. our, our, as an organisation, our history is rooted in persecution and displacement and, and conflict more so than natural disasters. Um, we can talk about the tension there, but just on, on point, natural disasters, there is a higher threshold for us to get involved. We have to, we have to see clearly that the disaster has overwhelmed the capacity of the state and local civil society. We have to see that we are able to add value within the response. So if we're not present in that country, can we get there quickly enough to make a difference? Um, and, and is that difference in amongst other NGOs, can we see a difference that we can deliver? And the answer to that is quite often yes. Um, and then can we deploy a team in such a way that doesn't draw resources from very high-risk, complex crises elsewhere in the world? So if we look at a terrain of NGOs, non-government humanitarian organizations that we work with and partner with every single day around the world, we, we are different than many of those organizations. So if you look at Save and Oxfam and Care and World Vision, they are anti-poverty organizations that do humanitarian programming. They maintain a footprint of 100 countries, 
We're a crisis-based organisation that maintains a footprint that responds to the most urgent humanitarian needs in 35 countries, mm -hmm. plus minus. Um, and for us to um, invest in a country, it, it really speaks to we think we can make a difference in that country. And it's often around risk. It's about the harshness of the environment, the, the situations that populations have seen that we feel as though we can really make a difference within. So for us to pull our staff out of that, where we feel as though we can, we can add unique difference to send it to a natural disaster zone where is, it's safer, um, the threat isn't continuing often, mm -hmm. um, and that many of our sister organisations already have as a presence on the ground, that it's not always an easy sum to 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 make work. Um, so we've looked to Mexico, earthquakes in Mexico. We've taken a close look at that. And we've made the decision not to go. We've looked at um, food, massive food insecurity uh, on the way towards famine in Madagascar. We made a decision not to do that. We've looked at some of the um, natural disasters that have affected Vanuatu and some of the Pacific Islands. Mm -hmm. And just because of the number of people that are affected, profoundly affected those lives, but the numbers are just tiny compared to the people that were serving in a place like Yemen. Um, so they're the ones that we say no to, and it, that isn't a tough call to make often. It's quite clear. The ones that are much tougher uh, are um, Greece, first world country, as we were looking at it in 2015, um, many of the people coming across uh, the, their legal status as refugees was it was a really difficult legal conversation to get into going into a European country. We we took a bold decision. We were one of the first organisations on the ground when there was still only one or two hundred people coming across the day uh, across a day, um, and when that translated into two, four, six thousand people a day, we we definitely felt as though we made the right choice on Greece. Bob, when we were walking over to the studios, you were telling us about your holiday where um, you got interrupted, unfortunately, with two or three phone calls and, and difficult decisions to make from multiple crises. On a personal level, do you just feel constantly pulled in different directions and spread really thin? Um, and the reason I ask that is that I think when I first joined the IRC four years ago, my first impression was that this was an organisation that was working in, what, 30, 35 countries, huge number, and not doing one thing, doing health, education, safety, protection, all sorts of different things. Um, and it was a challenge to actually be that good in that many places, that, that many things. And my assumption was that if we could narrow down in some way, if we could have a entry criteria that forced us to say no more often, then people like you would be able to um, concentrate on doing fewer things better. And I'm just interested in whether on a personal level, you do feel that sense of being pulled in too many directions and whether you think if you could say more often, say no more often, you could do a better job. Not that you don't do a great job. I mean, don't no, say I, that. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a fair comment some days. Um, so I think there have been times in the past where we did need to focus. We needed to make stronger decisions about whether it was within our mission or not. I think roll on five years to where we we stand now and conflict is becoming a more prominent aspect of, of Africa. The instability in uh, Latin America is becoming more prominent as well. So there, there is fewer and fewer quote-unquote crises where I can say that's really not us and more and more where I say, goodness me, it really is us and I'm not sure we can handle it because there's just so much going on. And it's not its not just more and more crises, it's that the crises that we have addressed two years ago that in years gone by would have subsided just keep on getting worse. Um, the one that 
springs to mind there is Yemen, which mm -hmm. is um, if you ask colleagues outside of the industry or anyone you meet in, in the family, you ask what's the world's largest, most critical humanitarian disaster, most people either won't know or they'll say Syria. The answer to that question is actually Yemen. The number of people affected in Yemen in the, the various number of ways they're affected, affected by conflict, affected by um, a depleted market inflation that is out of control and as a result of that uh, increasing malnutrition across the country and a country that has always been plagued by a lack of water. It's a very, very difficult situation and one that ha didn't rise to prominence and violence in a short period of time and then the international community got involved and settled things down. It just keeps getting worse and there isn't a solution there. So with Yemen ongoing getting worse, with Syria changing, numbers are changing in, a, in such a way that it looks like there is an improvement but it's masking continued humanitarian suffering so there really isn't an improvement there. South Sudan dictated by dry season, wet season, whether there's fighting, whether there isn't but continuing, DR Congo just about to fall over again. It just keeps stacking up. So I have not seen uh, a country come to me in the last year that I've um, thought we should have said no to them when, when we didn't. It's just uh, the, the world is in a, a place at the moment that's not good. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. uh, dark humor for kind of increasing conflicts. I mean, that gets to one of the other questions that I was kind of keen to get your reflections on, which is how some of the changing contexts that uh, that we work in have changed the, changed the fundamental nature of humanitarian response or what you do. And so I think, you know, some of the trends that... I think it uh, identified frequently as shaping the industry is, you know, one, a shift from interstate wars that you see, you know, characterize the international system from 1945 to the 1990s to an increase in the number of civil wars. Um, I think now in particular, you're seeing uh, the majority of refugees being displaced in middle income countries versus kind of poor, fragile states. And you see kind of a few trends um, that are really shaping kind of the, the fabric of the context in which responding. The one you're talking about right now is the fact that crises are more protracted, protracted um, and just increasing in incidents. Um, when you take a step back, what are the shifts that are changing that are most affecting where emergency response is and where emergency response is going? So uh, an outcome of one of the shifts that you spoke to, um, the, the move for away from um, conflict between between countries to conflict um, that is often not declared or recognised as conflict, but uh, uh, instability and violence within a country, between parties within a country. The, the outcome that I've seen is that there are less opportunities for refugee outflow and more need and the numbers bear this out for internal displacement. So the, it, we're at an all-time high of refugees around the world, but comparatively the number of internally displaced has grown. Now they're staying as close to their land as they can or trying to hold on in, in their own country. And I think that's because um, many of the countries that were seeing violence, uh, internal civil conflict, however you want to describe it, has seen it in the past. People have been refugees and they don't want to be refugees again. They want to try and hold on to their land as long as they can, be as close to it as they possibly can. So what that means is that um, we now are more often having to go into conflict zones, cross front lines 
than we were in the past when we just rock up into a neighboring country where there are refugee camps or mm-hmm. urban populations that we could provide care to. Um, Yemen is a great example. The number of refugees that have come out of Yemen is minuscule, tiny. It means that we have to go into Yemen and we have to go deep into Yemen to find the people who are really in need. It's way more complex to get humanitarian access because we're no longer having to um, just be in a safe country. We're having to negotiate our way into a fraught environment with territory that's contested by multiple parties to the conflict. So in Yemen, we'll shift examples soon, but it's still really easy. In Yemen, the southern half of the country is controlled by the Saudi um, Arab-supported coalition with the former government from Sana'a, the capital, who are now headquartered in Aden. Um, We have to work there. That's where there's huge need, huge malnutrition. There was an outbreak of cholera last year where... In previous years, previous countries, I remember in Sierra Leone back in the day, cholera was an outbreak when we saw single-digit patients. When we saw Mm -hmm. two, it was an outbreak. And when we saw 100, we were all very, very worried. In Yemen last year, the average per day was about 5,000. It was the biggest. 5,000 new incidences of cholera identified. Each and every single day. I think it's now close to or just past a million incidents in in Yemen, which is the world hadn't seen that since, I think, the First World War. So the the suffering across the country, the risk of this outbreak was so huge. We had to work in the south. But to be able to work in the south, we also had to work in the north. We had to work in the Houthi-controlled north. So we had to balance our efforts. The north doesn't sound like the south. I don't like us being in either place. So we had to negotiate with both parties to be present in both locations. These are challenges that um, we face in many of the countries we work in. But what happens when you actually can't work in all parts of the country? For instance, in Syria, where... We're not able to work in regime-controlled areas. And as a function of, well, I think there's a few mechanisms that you see kind of in these spaces. One is uh, context or geographic locations in which a government won't allow you to deliver aid. So Syria is a perfect example of this, where the government will only allow you to deliver aid to government-held territories and civilians who support the regime. And it's much comparatively harder to access other areas. There's another part, which is it may just be too challenging um, to actually access these areas for reasons of safety. And I'd be kind of curious to hear about when and how that happens. Um, and then there's a third version of this where it actually starts to get at the strategic dynamics between groups. And I'm curious as to whether this happens in Yemen, where because you're working in the south, uh, the north is much less likely to let you in because they're upset with your behavior, or vice versa, because you're working in the north, the government in the south is much more upset with you and less likely to uh, allow you in because humanitarian aid itself can be a means of supporting civilians on the opposing side. So the, the beginning of the answer to the, this question and most questions in this sphere of conversation is that we start by m- making sure that we put civilian populations in the centre of our conversation, that the people who are caught in the midst of crisis, midst of conflict, who don't have um, necessarily strong allegiances to any side, any party of the conflict, they're just trying to survive, they're our first priority and we do what it takes to get to those. So in the three, you're going to have to help me walk through those three scenarios. Syria um, is an example of probably the first two where the government doesn't want us to be there or the security risk is so Mm -hmm. high that it's pretty difficult to get in. Um, So the IRC has a, a, a rich history of looking at countries where the state doesn't allow foreign aid organizations to come in 
and assess the stakes at hand, the the risk of loss of civilian lives, and making a decision that that brings into account international law around sovereignty. Where if there is a trend of denial of access, then there's there's substantial precedent, and in many locations, uh, UN Security Council resolutions that allow cross border assistance. So we we use that precedence, and we always willing and happy when a, a Security Council resolution comes along to back that precedent up that allows us to do cross-border aid, um, irrespective of what the government, irrespective of sovereignty laws suggests. If there are people that we can safely gain access to to deliver um, aid that is uh, according to humanitarian principles of impartiality, meaning that it's driven by need and need alone, that it's neutral, speaks to one of your mm-hmm. points, where it's not adding to or helping or aiding any of the parties to the conflict. Um, if we can assure those things, then we will cross that border and we will deliver aid and we'll make sure everybody knows we're doing it. We're not trying to hide it. It's not covert. We will go across and we're saying we're here and we're going to help people. To, to your second question, or do you want to come back into that first one? Well, I wanted to just pick Probably up a bit more. just a, a very simple question, which is the government of Syria says you're not allowed to provide humanitarian assistance to non-regime supported civilian populations. And you say, no, we're going to do this. What's the response then? Right. Like if you're actually signaling to the government, you're uh, delivering aid here. This is in line with U.N. security resolutions. What do the either the negotiations, or the communications look like on this side? And, you know, very concretely, right, like is there a staff member who is calling the government liaison on the other side saying we're ignoring your request for, you mm-hmm. know, us to not deliver services mm-hmm. and we want to notify you of our, our coordinates and where we're going to be? Um, how does this actually – what does this look like in practice? So your, your question about Syria – the, the reality of the answer is that it's different in each case. Our relationship and communication with the government is, is different in Syria than it is in Afghanistan during the Taliban years. Um, we do our best to communicate with states to let them know what we're doing and why we're doing it and what we stand for. Um, in Syria, that's not generally been possible. But the reality of the conflict in Syria for the last at least um, up until about a year ago, the vast majority of people in need affected by the crisis um, lived within non-government controlled territory. So we were able to access them from the south, from the north and from the east. So we were going into territory that was controlled by, this will get me to your second scenario, Mm -hmm. but controlled by non-state armed actors who we were able to speak to, negotiate access with and deliver services. The government knew we were there. The government didn't have reach or didn't have prioritization to interfere with our operation because they had mm. other things going on. That compared to Afghanistan during the Taliban years where the tar- Taliban were headquartered between Kandahar and and uh, Kabul, we spoke to their governors on a frequent basis about who we were. We had um, some degree of approval at a local level and we negotiated everything with them locally. We weren't registered in country, we weren't permitted to be in country, but their local level authorities allowed us to move and allowed us to do the work. So that that's an example of, of where we intended to and did establish and, uh, and maintain contact with authorities. I want to move us on to thinking about the critique of humanitarian aid and emergency relief. And I almost want to start actually with a reflection from you, Bob, about the kind of ch- the failures that you've seen, even on a personal basis or, or uh, more broadly, and, and what you what you draw from some of those failures. 
And maybe let me just add one thing here, which is, you know, I think when you hear uh, discussions with kind of foreign policymakers and prior politicians, when they talk about humanitarian responses that they feel good or bad about, they're often about uh, our kinetic interventions, right? Sending peacekeepers, sending troops. Um, President Clinton and Susan Rice are uh, publicly, uh, you know, sad about the fact that they didn't intervene in Rwanda um, on um, that occasion. But I think there's an interesting different layer to kind of actual emergency relief, which is sometimes kind of a different calculus. Um, and so curious to, to get exactly Ravi's questions like projected onto that. There's been many ways that we could do better. I think looking back in the over the years, there's been an, a number of instances where we just haven't delivered coherent humanitarian assistance in a way that's made a difference to people. Haiti is a, a, a pretty visceral example where it was overwhelmed with NGOs and UN agencies and faith-based groups and volunteers. The, the delivery of assistance was not well coordinated or planned. We hadn't thought through what the end looked like. Um, and th- it was just a, the, a wealth of good intent resulted in a shambles of execution if it were. I, I'm trying to keep away from your, your first scenario, Grant, which is more foreign policy and the execution mm-hmm. of what we intend to do in a certain country by removing a regime, which is less to do with aid, but is often the result on civilian communities is is a lack of aid and humanitarian suffering as a result. Afghanistan, Iraq, both two very wonderful examples. I was on the ground in Iraq um, pre the day before we declared victory, the US declared victory um, as the... Don't worry, they were wrong. They were, we're, we're still winning, winning all the time. <laughs> and I, I just saw in Iraq the well-laid plans by the State Department being replaced by the poorly thought-through plans of the Department of Defense and the army being let go and then the outbreak of insurgency. So you could see that happening. That's much less to do with humanitarian assistance. So the big failures that I've seen over the years... Um, has been to do with the fact that we're trying to do comparatively simple things in the world's most complex places. And without the the nature of of a civil society, the nature of even an international community or um, sector is that it's made up of many different independent groups with autonomy of action, autonomy of funding, and the UN and large international organizations like the ISE work very hard to keep a plan together, to keep this um, loose association of independent groups together to execute against one plan. But the reality is that it's incredibly difficult to do that within, um, however, you know, the best laid plans as soon as it comes in contact with reality, what it falls to pieces. And that's what we see time and time again, where we're trying to do simple things, dig holes for latrines, deliver safe water to people, set up a, a primary healthcare clinic. But because of politics and complexity and insecurity, it all goes wrong. It is an interesting example. So pre-earthquake, uh, you had just massive political instability mm-hmm. over the previous decades, uh, multiple numbers of coups, foreign intervention by the United States, as well as allies. Um, and uh, gang rule in places, and then you have it intersect with a massive natural disaster. And 
a huge outpouring uh, by the international community, both through kind of formal mechanisms of state giving as well as just individual giving, I think, on unprecedented levels. Um, coupled with just a total fragmentation of response, I think it's something like between five and 10,000 new NGOs were launched in the years following um, the actual- When in doubt, set up an NGO. When in doubt, set up an NGO. That should be the theme of, of this show. When in doubt, do not set up a new NGO. <laughs> but it- when you look back at Haiti and you look back at the way things played out, which was, you know, thousands of NGOs delivering fragmented aid, money mm -hmm. lost, massive inefficiencies. And you look at Haiti right now and uh, the the landscape is not where it should be given the mm -hmm. massive influx of wealth. What would you have done differently, either from a policy perspective or a programming perspective? If you, if you had a magic wand um, – in that case, how do you think you could have shaped a different arc of response? So I, I think the various answers you will hear to that question about Haiti and many of the other countries that have um, been vulnerable pre-crisis and become much worse because of a crisis is that we should have started to plan from day one for durable, sustainable solutions. That That's the off-pat answer that many people give. Mm -hmm. My answer is that um, the outpouring of millions, if not billions of dollars within the first two or three years is the beginning of the investment it takes to turn a country that was, as you said, massively vulnerable, corrupt, disorganized and fragile as a result pre-crisis. And it's now just become 10 times worse. Two or three years of engagement, two or three years of investment isn't enough to turn that around. So I don't know why we continue to be surprised when we have less than ideal outcomes in places like Haiti, when it really is three, four, maximum five years, and then the international community say we can no longer fund programs over there. People are no longer dying because of the as a result of the natural disaster that they were affected by. It's other things now; they're not our responsibility. We're going to go and look over it somewhere somewhere else. Um, it's the disengagement that makes the difference over time. But are you sort of saying that even if the response was much more coordinated and efficient and effective? The inherent difficulty, complexity of the task is such that we can't expect much better outcomes. I'm saying that it takes longer than we give it and uh, it takes more money than we are willing as a global community are willing to invest to and we just move on to the next crisis, establish just, a yeah. positive traje trajectory for a country and then help it to stay on that trajectory. Because when you're, you're facing a country like Haiti on, and so many others, pre-crisis, massively poor, massively corrupt unless there is a commitment that we're going to stay and we're going to invest and we're going to work our way through this, if that commitment is absent, then the individuals who are in charge um, of making decisions will make decisions for their own best benefit to start with. I just want to take you back to, I do really like getting into failure and criticism with you, Bob, obviously. And you talked a little bit about the, the journey in the first 72 hours and the difficulty of actually getting visas and getting on a plane and getting to the place. I can remember we talked a few years ago and you said, 72 hours in, we're just about there. We may have got our SIM card, but it's pretty hard to deliver anything else in that immediate um, time period. And at the time, this was a few years ago, you were also saying that in the first month, um, a lot of time was spent really diagnosing need, doing needs assessments of what different affected populations uh, want and need. And we weren't actually providing much. Um, and one of the changes you've tried to bring about is to do that needs diagnosis, but in parallel to provide some services that are going to keep people alive, health, cash, 
basic water sanitation services. And I'm just interested in your take on whether we're along the way to tackling that problem of being too slow to respond to need, and also whether we're getting to scale. Because again, another one of your criticisms, I think, has been that um, collectively, cumulatively, the humanitarian response is in no way proportioned to the scale of the problem, and that we need to be thinking far more um, dramatically about scale. And one way to do that is to actually reduce the number of things we are doing in that first uh, month and pre-positioning with uh, local partners and others so that we can hit the ground running at scale. So I'd love you to talk a bit more about whether you think we're along the way, we're getting getting there, and what does um, bigger, better, faster aid look like? From my perspective, we've seen success from unexpected quarters in terms of getting quicker, and we've understood more fully why it takes us, um, the time it takes us to get into country and the consequences of going more fast. So to describe what that looks like now, um, you're right, in years gone by, within 72 hours, we could generally get on the ground, buy ourselves a SIM card, find a hotel that's safe, and only then just start to reach out to talk to communities. Um, we we ha- we felt great tension between how do we prioritise between delivering life-saving aid and, as we discussed earlier, checking with communities and understanding, you know, asking, listening and acting. How, how has your life changed? What are your biggest priorities? And what we found is that the, the commitment around, through this discussion you and Ravi, Ravi and I had, we made the decision that we wanted to do both at the same time. We wanted to deploy a team comprised of two groups, one to conduct the needs assessment, to ask and listen, and the other to act to get on the ground and really just begin delivering based on assumptions that we know pretty much hold true in many parts of the world. Now, what we found is the reality is that that will work and work well in natural disasters that uh, affect stable countries. What we found, though, is that, you know, there's a reason why it takes time to understand um, when you operate in a conflict where there's groups with different interests and people hold control of different places and front lines get in the way and there's no fuel for the cars. There's, you know, there's there's lots of different pressures on you. And what we found is that in those locations, when we are new to the location, um, safety of both the communities that we're there to serve and our staff means that we, we can't, we can't do our, uh, the, the aspiration of two teams getting involved from day one. We have to take it more slowly. The, the unexpected or, the not quite so soundly planned part of um, the commitments we've made is that when we have an existing presence in a country where we have a mission there long term, that makes all the difference in the world. So we've invested a lot of time and effort in building the capacity of Nigerians, of Southern Sudanese, of Ethiopians to do the work that they're in country to help their own people. And that has seen a, a, a massive increase in the speed that we can we can operate at. To speak, can I speak to scale? Um, is it the scale question? Um, we found ourselves 2013, correct me if I'm wrong, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, 2013, 2014. Um, Four million people lost their homes, 11 million people who were displaced temporarily. Um, we deployed, weren't present in the Philippines before, went in as a new actor, um, had to register, find our feet on the ground. Um, what we delivered was one of the programs that I have been most proud of in recent memories where we helped um, islanders um, replace their fishing boats and nets, repair the nets where we can or replace them. So we, we helped people get back to work in a really meaningful way and super proud and we helped 2,000 families. 
out of a caseload of four million. And we just we came away thinking we did an awesome but incredibly tiny job there, and we need to do more. We need to find ways to take quality to scale. We need to find ways to take the change in people's lives so it affects more people. And And, and you set yourself pretty stretching targets. We set. Targets that the target that has endured and that we still subscribe to and are driving towards is that we will provide assistance to 10% of the affected population. So, in a place like Yemen or a place like Syria, that's over the million people, Mark. It's a big, big number. Um, And the typhoon, you were only short by 398,000. Yeah. We would have got there in the end. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, few things. One, no other organization has these type of metrics that they, they consistently measure. We, we, we looked around our sister organizations to understand what the, the rest of the community were doing. No one else strives for proportionality in the way that we do now. So there's no um, systems in place to measure or benchmark against. So we, we, we have had to create the systems to measure this against. What we found in places... Um, like Syria, like Yemen, we're hitting those numbers consistently. In the really big crises where we've had some time to get to that goal, we've consistently we passed the threshold and we struggle in a frustrating and really profound way to get to anywhere close to 10% in brand new crises. It, it, we're really having to work on that. So you've been on the front lines of humanitarian response for the past 20 or so years in some of the worst deployments and zones and just curious to hear over the past few years or a decade or two decades what in humanitarian response have you really changed your mind on what was something that you used to believe um, that you no longer believe to be true I'm now a firm believer in cash programming Mm -hmm. giving people money allowing them to make the decision I wasn't that way when I started and I think this is a um a common experience across many now older aid workers who started during the 90s. Um, when I entered, I, I genuinely thought if we, we gave um, people money, the man would take the money and go and get alcohol and drink it, or that's best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is he would go and buy a gun and join the, the forces. What we know now um, through surveys across the world is that families operate more or less the same around the world. That If you give a family some money and they're in a really difficult situation, um, the key here is that you give them the money to the mother. If you give the money to the mother, then the family will operate, make the same choices of protecting their children, making sure that they have clothes, making sure they have food, making sure they have access to healthcare. So those surveys, they've turned me around. I'm now a believer in cash, as long as you give it to the, the women. And when you think of yourself when you're in DRC or in Afghanistan or your team, how do you uh, look after yourself? How do you stay optimistic? Everyone looks after themselves in different ways. I'm a runner, so getting out of the office and taking time away has always been really important to me. It, it's resulted in um, my staff really uh, going the extra mile for me in Sudan, uh, sorry, in Iraq. I used to run with a bodyguard next to me and then a bodyguard in a car behind me. In Sudan, I used to have to take a car with me because the packs of dogs used to chase me. So the car used to have to scare the dogs away. And then when I went to Chad, I used to have to take a car behind me because children used to throw stones at me and I couldn't persuade them to stop. Jump roping. My pro tip is (laughs) jump roping. In in Somalia, in DRC, when I've been in places where like similar problems... 
jump yeah, roping I, in your backyard. I, w- I went back to northeastern Syria last year and I took a jump rope. It, it's way more simple, but that's the way I um, say Fewer Yeah, And just, opt- I mean, on a serious note, looking at the headlines every single day, how do you feel, how do you stay optimistic about the potential to deal with the, the scale and severity of the crises we're facing? So my source of, of optimism, and you spoke earlier to, um, I was based in Afghanistan. I was based in Kabul um, 2009 to 2011 during the surge where there was more military there, foreign military there than anywhere else in the world, and the, the level of violence was off the charts. Um, my my source of optimism there, and, and it's been sustained by trips to Mogadishu and Juba and other places around the world, is that the people that we work with, the people are fantastic, that they've been through decades of violence and yet they hold the same values as we do. They look after their families. They they want the best for their children. They want their children to be educated, to have a better life than they did. Um, you travel the world and people want the same things. They want freedom. They want education. They want happiness. And while there's more people like that, there's more staff and, and communities that we get to work with who, who want that, that's the reason why we work. Great. And maybe we'll end on this last question, which is, what advice would you give to somebody who is young and uh, wants to join the humanitarian sector um, at this point, at this given these changing contexts, and give it your vantage point? It's a competitive um, employment market to get into in a way that drives me crazy on a day-to-day basis. So I spend half of my day um, hearing from candidates just graduated from university wanting to get into the industry, and I say to them, I'm sorry, we don't have spaces for you because you don't have enough experience. And then the rest, the other half of my day is spent saying we don't have enough staff, and it drives me insane that we, we, we need to do more to bridge that gap. So advice to young folks who want to get into our industry is to get um, opportunities to volunteer, Peace Corps, um, service overseas to get onto your resume um, some experience that shows that you can deal with tough places and being away from family and friends. Um, and then, you know, just meet people, network, um, volunteer in HQs around the world and you'll eventually make it. We need people desperately. Bob Kitchen, thank you very much for joining us this week. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.